0: In reaching the world, there must be content and reality. When we think about the internet, it is very good for the transmission of content. It is by virtue of its limitations. I mean, the reality of Christian love, which Jesus said is how people would know his followers and that he prayed for with respect to our unity so that the world would believe that the father had sent him. There are limitations on what can be done in terms of the realities that also bear witness to the truth of Christ.
1: To the Apologetics podcast I'm Garrick Bailey in each episode of this serious but light-hearted podcast Timothy Paul Jones and I explore evidences for the truth of Christianity and along the way
2: we even talk about movies, music and culture if you're interested in supporting this podcast and receiving shirts mugs and more go to patreon.com/ three chords and the truth that's chords with an H the kind you play not the kind you plug. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to The Apologetics Podcast,
1: where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll.
2: Welcome to The Apologetics Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Today we have with us Dr. Keith Plummer. He's the Professor of Theology and Dean of the School of Divinity at Cairn University in Pennsylvania. He has a PhD in Systematic Theology from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, where he also earned his Master of Divinity. He's here to talk with us about deconstruction, technology, and an apologetic of kindness. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Plummer. Sure. Thanks for the invitation.
1: Dr. Palmer, you have contributed to a couple of books recently that we'll be highlighting today. The first is called Before You Lose Your Faith, Deconstructing Doubt in the Church, which is published by our friends at the Gospel Coalition, as well as The Digital Public Square, Ethics and Religion in a Technological Society by also our friends at b Academic. So we're excited to talk about those today. But Before we do, before we have this fun conversation, we have to have a pre-fun conversation, a pro-fun log, as Timothy always likes to call it. Just kidding, he never says that. Uh, This is our segment called Indiana Jones and the Raiders of Church History. History, history. (laughs) History.
2: bring something that there is no way that you are going to be able to defeat this time around. It is undefeatable because even if it is defeatable, you won't want to defeat it. It is Belferline the Reformation puppy. That's right. Belferline the Reformation puppy. Martin Luther, as you may know, had a dog and the dog's name was belfer line. Now, I've got to talk a little bit about this because I actually ended up doing an inordinate amount of research. I know you can't imagine me doing an inordinate amount of research about anything, (laughs) but I did an inordinate amount of research on Martin Luther and dogs, and I was really kind of frightened and disappointed at first because at first when I was reading about this, it said that Martin Luther had a Pomeranian. Now, to us, what a Pomeranian means is a—now, if you're one of our listeners and you have a Pomeranian, this is all the Pomeranians except yours that I'm describing right here. So we know Pomeranians as annoying tiny creatures. And every time I encounter one of those yapping creatures, I want to lock it in a room with our cat and see what happens because I know what would happen at that point. And as I said, this is all the Pomeranians, except those of our listeners. Those of our listeners are beautiful, little cuddly, wonderful creatures, but all the others are are really annoying. But Martin Luther, it said, had a Pomeranian. I was worried because my My opinion of Martin Luther was about to go way down at that point if he had a Pomeranian, (laughs) because I just don't think of Martin Luther as the Pomeranian type of guy. He just is not that type of guy. So here's what I found out, though. The Pomeranian in the 16th century was not what we know as a Pomeranian now. It was a type of German Spitz. It was a type of a German Spitz dog, which is about 50 pounds. So it was a real dog. It wasn't like a little furball. It was a real, real dog at that point. It's about the size of your dogs, Cosmo and Captain, which are amazing creatures as well because they're they're real dogs as well. So it's about that size. And Martin Luther called Belferline his nickname for Belferlein, for line was tautful topel, which in German means a riot, like something that's really riotously funny or foolishly funny is the implication that it has at that point. And Martin Luther, he, he was so fond of dogs, and his dog in particular, that he even wrestled with this issue of whether dogs will have any part in the resurrection. And what he concluded is not that dogs go to heaven and not that dogs have souls such that they are resurrected, any spiritual component where they're going to be resurrected. He does not heretically conclude that. But he does conclude this. He says, certainly that dogs will have some part even in the resurrection. For Peter calls that day the time of the restitution of all things. God will create a new heaven and a new earth, and he will also create new topples with skin of gold and hair of pearls. So he says, basically, God in the new creation, he's going to create new dogs they are going to be dogs in the new creation, not because he resurrects current dogs, not because dogs go to heaven, nothing like that. Rather, there will be dogs because God will create new ones in his millennial reign, or depending on where your millennial view is, in some sort of a future restoration of all things. And so I bring to you Belferline, the Reformation puppy, which there is no way you could ever even want to defeat Belferline, the Reformation puppy, Martin Luther's beloved dog that was this 50-pound German Spitz, I am sure, an amazing animal.
1: Putting two of my favorite things together, the Reformation and puppies. I mean, you're right. It's, there's not. I don't really want to enter this contest. You know, cats will also be resurrected. It's just that they'll be resurrected as dogs.
2: So that's... <laughs> how we deal with that one but i think we do know that cats do have a spiritual aspect to them it's just not a good spirit (laughs) it's an evil spirit and we have cats and i like cats but i also know where they come from and i know where they're going where where they're they're spending eternity yes
1: (laughs) well i might as well just throw mine out there just for the fun of it This week, I present to you the cincture of the Theotakos. That's right, the Theotakos, which everyone, as everyone knows, is the Greek word for God-bearer, which was the nickname of Jesus' mother, Mary. That's what she went by in the neighborhood, Theotakos. Probably just takos, or, you know, people shorten it, it's a long word. Anyways, the cincture of the Theotakos, the God-bearer, the legend claims that this religious artifact belonged to Mary, who wove it from camel's hair herself, because she's crafty, just like Run DMC said. And on the day of her ascension, Mary gave her belt to the Apostle Thomas as a blessing. And on September 13th, the Christian church celebrates the feast in honor of this artifact. Parts of the Cincture of the Godbearer are now kept in different churches around the world, as with most relics and artifacts. They're famous. They exist in many, many places. So, yeah, the Cincture of Theotokos, I think I could make a case for how this would win, but I'm not going to because I I don't want to win. I don't want to
2: beat a puppy in any sense of the word well I think that what would happen is that Mary's cincture would become a chew toy for Belfourline and there would be an irony here considering Martin Luther's view of certain things Catholic that he would totally give it to Belfourline as a chew toy <laughs> because he of course would not have believed as we probably don't believe either in the uh, bodily assumption of Mary or any of those things like that but he might use it as a leash like a yes. like a
1: the holy leash the the there leash of the Godbearer: We he, could have. We could have, put, have done.
2: put it around Belferline's neck, and then it could have been Belferline's collar. And so there we have the cincture of the Blessed Virgin would become Belferline's collar. That is the most Martin Luther thing that we could possibly say that we could actually put on the program. <laughs> Keith, now just to ask one of the most important questions that we ask in every program. It is a very important question. There are no more important questions than this one that don't involve these artifacts from church history. So the question is this. We ask it of every guest on their first time on our program, and it is, if you could be part of any rock band in the history of rock and roll, what band would it be and what would you be doing in that band? Well, I spent some time thinking about it and I think it would be the Doobie
0: Brothers. Ooh. And I would be on the keyboard. It's not just because I want to be Michael McDonald. I I like Michael McDonald's soulful voice. I really, really appreciate his music. I was a big Doobie Brothers fan in my youth. But I took piano when I was a child, and I was just amazed when I got older by the chord work that he did on the keyboards. And when I took piano, I never liked theory, the scales, or anything like that. I would run out and buy sheet music so I could play my favorite songs. And as a result, I could never improvise or play by ear. And I really regret that I didn't take the time to learn the theory so that I could play the keyboards like that, even if I couldn't sing and play the keyboards like Michael McDonald does, if I could just play the keyboards like that. But interestingly, I think that there is, and I tell my apologetic students, I think that my lament has some bearing on apologetics.
2: Oh. And what bearing does it have on apologetics? So describe this for us, because any time music and apologetics intersect, we are at that intersection.
0: <laughs> well, because I didn't have the time and the patience to do the theory work, and I wanted to immediately get to playing my songs that I liked... I think the the relationship is a lot of times when people approach apologetics, they're not necessarily interested in understanding their faith and the reason for it. They just want, tell me what to say in this situation. And if that's what we settle for, then we're going to be less able to be spontaneous and to do improvisation in terms of conversing with people.
1: Yeah, I agree. And as We've talked with Josh Shatro in the past, and as I think he says so well in his book, Telling a Better Story, which Keith, you and I have interacted online about our appreciation, our love for this book, that thinking of apologetics that way is also this silver bullet mentality, which is not having a conversation with someone in front of you as much as it is trying to defeat an argument, an idea, a concept that even if a human being is in front of you suddenly becomes depersonalized.
2: Talk first about your chapter on deconstruction and scientism in the book Before You Lose Your Faith. So let's talk about that for just a little bit. Great chapter in that particular book from the Gospel Coalition. And first off, I would like just to think about just for a moment, what is deconstruction? Because there's some people in our audience who are going to be all over that term, and some people that are like, I've not really heard about that, or worse yet, I've heard it, but I don't even know what people are talking about when they say that. And so What are we even talking about when we talk about deconstruction?
0: Well, as you uh, indicated, I don't think we're talking about one thing, depending upon who's using the term. Some people might be using the term to refer to a painful realization that for a variety of reasons, they no longer find the faith that they once professed plausible, and uh, they're going through a period of disillusionment and questioning and doubting. Others might be using the term to refer to the questioning of whether or not some things that they have thought were elements of the Christian faith have more cultural than biblical basis for them, and so they're doing what I think is a necessary and a good questioning. Others still will use the the word in the more technical term of deconstruction in the sense of suspecting that all truth claims are really plays for power, and thereby trying to show how it is that that's what's going on with the claims of Christianity, in which case what they're seeking to do is to demolish or destroy the faith. And so I think it's, it's really, really important to realize that there is no one definition, and so it's really important when we're talking about it or with someone about it that we find
2: out what they're meaning by it. I love the way you put that there because it is so important that we define that term. Because one person could mean it in that sense, that critical sense of saying basically all truth is simply what we call truth is simply a human construction, and I am recognizing the power structures in that. I'm and I'm, I'm demolishing that, recognizing it that there is no real truth. There is simply there are simply structures of power. That type of a false idea, right there. That's what some people mean. Some people just mean it in the sense they're taking the pieces apart in their faith, laying it out to try to figure out what they believe. And if we take that person who's doing that and accuse them of doing the other, then we shut down a conversation that would be good to have. And on the other hand, if somebody is doing this power deconstruction thing and we hear what they're saying and we try to affirm it, we may be affirming something we really don't want to affirm at the same time. So my encouragement to our listeners really is when somebody says I'm deconstructing, ask what do you mean by that let's talk about what you mean by that and let's figure out that out so that we can have a good conversation that we actually know what we're talking about together in this yeah i'm i'm thankful for this discussion i serve at the village church here in flower mount
1: texas and our pastor was speaking of de- deconstruction in that second sense kind of where, where you talked about this helpful and good questions and conversations to be having with yourself to To figure out, is my faith, my Christian faith, is it more formed by kind of some cultural context or or cultural issues more than scripture or whatever? And, And he was speaking of it that way. And just like with so many other conversations in public right now, folks hear the word and don't distinguish between these meanings and just put him on blast, you know. You're flaming liberal, you're on this slippery slope, you're all of those things. And, and it's just this failure to understand terminology, to try to understand others and the conversation they're having. And it's just this state that we're in right now that's kind of painful to see. And we
0: can talk about it a little bit later, uh, but you know, this is another area where my interest in technology comes up, because I think in many ways we're habituating ourselves to lack the patience and the frames of mind that is necessary for the kind of distinctions that are necessary and are critical for fruitful conversations. The degree to which we demand and expect speed and brevity and efficiency, that is going to impinge upon whether or not we can have the kind of thought and communication that is called for to have these important conversations with people.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. How should Christians respond when they hear someone saying, I'm deconstructing my faith? When your students or people in your church come up and and ask this type of question to you, how do you coach and counsel them through having these type of discussions?
0: Well, I I agree completely with what Timothy said. The first thing is to not assume that I know what someone means by their use of the term. And so to ask, well, when you say that, can you tell me more about what you mean by that? And then you know, allowing them to fill in a lot of blanks that are currently existent in my mind in terms of what they mean by it. And then uh, beyond that, I think asking if they're willing to talk about some of the factors that have contributed to the current state that they say that they're in what um what were their particular items of information that you came across were there particular experiences that you have had that have led to this are you willing to to talk about them in some cases the plausibility of the faith or the lack thereof it's largely related to what they have seen and experienced in the context of the church from christians and so forth and so i i want to know that and to the degree that i am able to i want to affirm what it is that they are questioning that should be questioned and so i i think rather than immediately going into the defense mode gathering some more information as to what they mean as well as learning what are the factors that have led them to where they are and whatever is praiseworthy in that, if it is a matter of they have experienced real hurt, saying that is something that is terrible and should not have happened. And I can understand why it is that this could unsettle you about some of these things. And to the degree that they are willing to continue the conversation, maybe just asking them, would you be willing to talk further about this, helping them think through and maybe question some of the things that they aren't questioning that they are using as a basis of critique about the faith. Because a lot of times what people will do is they will swing to another frame of reference that they may or may not have actually thought about. So
1: those are some of the things that I would recommend. Hmm. That's helpful. This question may feel like a turn for some, but if we're kind of sticking with this idea of terminology and knowing what a word means when it comes up in conversation or we you know see it out in the world, your chapter in the book, Before You Lose Your Faith, it focuses on scientism, which is something I've always had an interest in. So could you tell folks what scientism is and why this is something Christians ought to care about and and how we respond to it when when we bump into it. Sure. In my chapter, I
0: selected one thing that oftentimes people presume that leads them to have serious questions about the faith that I think needs to be questioned itself, and that is scientism, which I think it's really important to distinguish between scientism and science. Now, the two in the minds of many people have become so interwoven that they're practically synonymous, and so that when you critique scientism, some people will say that you're being anti-scientific. And so I I try to explain the, the difference that I have in mind there. Scientism simply is the belief that science is the only or the superior way of knowing what's true or what's real. J.P. Moreland, he does an article in uh, Zondervan's Dictionary of Science and Christianity, and in that, as well as he has a very good popular-level book uh, on scientism and secularism, but in in his article, he makes a differentiation between strong scientism and weak scientism, and he says this, that strong scientism claims that some proposition is true and or rational to believe if and only if it is a scientific proposition. That is, if and only if it is a well-established scientific proposition that in turn depends on its having been successfully formed, tested, and used according to appropriate scientific methodology. And that is in contrast to weak scientism, where there's not such an exclusive claim that science is the only way of knowing what is true or what is real, but it certainly is the superior form. So if you hold a weak scientism, you're saying, well, there might be other ways of knowing, but they all are subordinate to science. And so scientism would be the idea that if something isn't scientifically demonstrable, you can't really claim to know it, at least in the strong form. You can say, I believe that, I think that might be so, but you can't claim to know it unless and until it has been empirically or scientifically verified
1: Hmm. so when we bump into you know in conversation with folks who whether knowingly or not kind of hold to one of these versions of scientism and you know we get in these discussions or or even like in your example someone who maybe in this questioning phase and in, in some type of deconstruction that we talked about earlier and thinks that science is kind of this main cause. What do those conversations look like when we meet those folks? Yeah, well, as you said, I,
0: I think most people hold to this unknowingly. I think it is rare that you will ever encounter someone who will say, I adhere to scientism. But, but there are some ways that you can Detect that someone might be assuming this when they make claims such as, well, you can't really say that you know that because that has been scientifically proven. And I, I think that it's helpful in cases like that to ask for clarification. If I suspect that someone might be presuming the legitimacy of scientism, just asking, am I to understand you correctly and that science is the only way of knowing what's true or real? And that both helps them think about it. And also it can get clarity for us in terms of if they say yes, then, okay, I, I know I'm dealing with someone who holds to this. And, and I think that what is beneficial to do in a situation like that is to try by way of using a number of questions to help someone see what are some of the problems with scientism on its own terms. I think that in apologetics, in our witness to the world, A lot of times, what Christians want to immediately do is to refute an idea by showing how it's inconsistent with Christian ideas. And certainly, I think that's true. But a lot of times, before people are willing to even give a more serious audience to the claims of the Christian worldview, they have to have some doubts sown with respect to what it is that they may not have really thought through. And so, I think it's really helpful to help someone see if scientism is true it raises a number of problems with respect to a lot of things that we assume that we know that we couldn't if we were to consistently live out
1: scientism. I had a professor early on in my seminary education mention this fact and then I Kind of recently had a conversation with a friend who got his PhD in material science, and he's kind of a smart guy. The fact that science degrees, advanced science degrees, that very few of them require any extended discussion, if any, uh, on the philosophy of science, uh, that's just not a part of the scientific world, so that the people in the scientific community don't even have these discussions, don't even rarely have their assumptions and presuppositions kind of brought into question. And, and that's, I think that's really telling. It's something that it's like scientism is in the water, right? That it's just not something that anyone's aware of, even the professionals.
0: Yes. And, and I think it's really important for us again, as Christians to say, science is a wonderful thing. And there is nothing that is inherently antagonistic between Christian faith and the doing of science. And as many have brought out before, in fact, on the basis of Christian premises, it makes the most sense to say that we can think God's thoughts after him, to expect that there is some discernible rationality in nature that can be traced. But when we're critiquing scientism, what we're saying is science is but one way of knowing certain aspects of reality, this is not throwing science under the bus, it's simply to acknowledge the, the limitations of science. And so if you can get people to think about some of the things that they probably don't have any question about knowing, and you know, in the chapter I talk about things related to memory. I know what I had for breakfast this morning, but my current knowledge isn't based on any present empirical experience. Historical knowledge. If you were to consistently apply scientism, you would have to do away with most of what we think we know with respect to what has happened in the past. But even more significantly is the question of moral knowledge that certain things that we just intuitively have a sense, I know that this is right or wrong, if scientism were true, we would have to dispense with
1: all claims to moral knowledge. Yeah. Jeez. Fun fact, Alvin Plantinga's book on this topic, Where the Conflict Really Lies, is the one a book that I understood the first time I read it. So just throwing that
2: out there. <laughs> that, well, that is easy to understand because his other stuff is, yeah. Well, you have a strong interest in apologetics and something I found that almost always if somebody has a really strong interest in apologetics there's almost always a story behind it there's a narrative in their life behind it there is a story behind my getting really interested in
0: apologetics and i have to condense it really really tightly i grew up going to a liberal protestant church united church of christ with my family who were not believers you know i didn't hear the gospel there at all but simultaneously My mom had sent me to a Missouri Synod Lutheran parochial school, kindergarten through eighth grade, where I did receive some pretty solid, sound biblical instruction. But I didn't become a Christian. If you had asked me if I was a Christian when I was younger, I would have said yes. It was the Lordship of Christ had no manifestation in my life, but that's how I was raised. But I became a Christian when I was 19 on the campus of a very liberal, secular institution, and one of the things that got me thinking, I took a class, it was an elective, and I think it was called Magic Science and Religion. And it was a sociological exploration of religion and religious phenomena. And it rocked me because it was essentially denying that God existed. And even though I wasn't a Christian at the time, I just assumed, well, yeah, there's a God. And I remember asking my mom, how do you know that God exists? And she wasn't a believer at the time. And she's was talking about, well, if there wasn't a God, I wouldn't have gotten through the things that I've gotten through and so forth. It didn't really satisfy me, but I put it on the the back burner. I ended up singing with a student-led gospel choir called Voices of Inspiration. I had always grown up singing in choirs. And I reluctantly joined this choir because, well, I, I wanted to join it because I loved the music they were doing. And I liked a lot of the people who were in it but I thought the leadership was too religious. You know, they talked about being born again. They incorporated prayer in the rehearsals. They encouraged people to go to Bible studies and find a church. And I just wanted to sing. And so I did join. And I know that a lot of them were praying for me. They were witnessing to me. They were never really over the top or anything, but they were available to me. And it was through my involvement with that and, and seeing, I realized at one point, some of these people, when they're singing, they're singing to someone, and they're singing about someone that I just don't know. I'm singing because of whoever's there to hear us. And that got me thinking. I was aware of sin in my life at the time that I was rationalizing, and we were at one member's church. I think it was a Christmas break. We were doing concerts, and there was an evangelistic message that the pastor gave, I had a real sense of conviction and a real sense like I had not known before of guilt. Not just guilt feelings, but that I was really guilty. And I responded to the gospel. After responding to Christ, there were noticeable changes in my life. There was a newfound peace where there had previously been just this restlessness. Above all, there was this sense of having been Cleanse in my conscience and there was a, a lightness of soul that i had not known before there was a sense of knowing god and there was this voracious appetite for the bible that i had never ever had before i was neglecting my studies because i wanted to read the bible and this wasn't something that i was working up but something happened and i don't know what led to it but something occurred where i started to ask the question This peace, this joy, this sense of cleansed conscience, is this just a head trip? Are these just psychological phenomena that I'm experiencing because I believe Christianity is true that I would be experiencing even if it weren't? And I started to spiral down into what I can only describe as a hellish period of doubt. I knew what it was to ask questions of the faith as an unbeliever that were motivated by the desire to protect myself from the claims of the gospel. Now I was on the other side, and I was asking questions, but they weren't to shield me. I wanted Christianity to be true, but I was seriously questioning whether or not it really was and how could I know. And the people who were in my life at the time were not very helpful. I remember people saying, well, why are you thinking about these things? Just stop thinking about them. I would have loved to have stopped thinking about them. An older Christian woman, well-meaning, she said, confess your doubt as sin, ask God to forgive you, go on. And I did that again and again and again. And I would have temporary relief, but the questions were still there. And I was questioning everything from obviously the existence of God, the inspiration of Scripture, the existence of Jesus, the identity of Jesus, the resurrection, the possibility of miracles, and so forth. And I'm originally from New York. There was one summer, I believe, where I was in New York at what at the time was New York's largest Christian bookstore. And I was walking down an aisle. I saw a book that was about five great American evangelists. And humanly speaking, The only reason that I picked up this book is because there was this odd appearing man on the cover. And I didn't know who this was. And I said, I got to figure out who this is. I started to page through the book, and it was Francis Schaeffer. (laughs) And I remember when I was reading about his ministry and the emphases of his ministry, tears came to my eyes because someone was taking seriously the questions that were creating so much consternation in me. I was at a point in my life where I thought, I am going to have to make a decision between the life of my mind, because I had always been intellectually, academically inclined, or a zeal-filled, though pretty much thoughtless, devotion to Christ. And in Schaeffer, I found someone who was showing how it is that the christian faith speaks to all of life including intellectual issues and how it is that the christian faith has resources and answers for addressing intellectual philosophical existential matters in a way that nothing else can or has so that was my introduction to schaefer i soon got his complete works and i was working my way through through that but i describe him as a stream in the desert of my early Christian life. And I am immensely grateful for his life and his work. And I remember praying, God, if you would use me in the lives of other people as you used him in mine. And I wasn't speaking in terms of the scope of his ministry or notoriety, but just being able to help someone who was struggling through as I was, as he did for me. I just said, I would love to do that. And I I see the things that I'm doing now in terms of teaching and the opportunities to write as answers to prayer. I get to teach apologetics every semester and I love doing
2: it. So that's something of the story. There's a motif I've noticed in my own story and in a lot of other people's when they tell a story like this. And one of the the motifs that shows up almost every time is this sense of, I must be the only person asking these questions, having that feeling. And then what part of what turns the light on, so to speak, is, oh my goodness, there's this other person over here who's had these questions. And that could be a, a person that you meet, or it could be a, a book you read. For me, it was C.S. Lewis's book, Surprised by Joy, which was his trajectory from atheism to Christianity. And I realized, oh my goodness, the questions I'm asking, somebody else already asked those and, and wrestled with those. And for you, it was Francis Schaeffer realizing, He's, he's asking, he's wrestling with, he's taking seriously these questions as well. I find that to be one of the most interesting motifs. And what I think it lets us know is how much we need to say publicly, we have these questions or we have had these questions or we're wondering about these things because there are students out there, there are people out there who have these questions who just like you and I, what they're feeling is, I'm the only person that has this question. Well, your chapter in the book, The Digital Public Square, is all about the connection between technology and the church's witness. So I just want to start talking about that by asking this question. How, in your mind, are Christians doing right now when it comes to using technology and using it well for the church's witness? How are Christians doing right now in your estimation? Well, it
0: depends on what aspect of technology you're you're talking about. Um, I think that there I mean. I think something like what you guys are doing, I think this is a very good use of technology. Where I have my most concern and critique has to do with the area of social media when it comes to the church's witness to the world. And in that regard, I would say Christians are not doing well, by and large. There are exceptions, of course. But I think that Christians have too often... Taken a very naive view towards technology, which is this as long as I am not using it for immoral ends, all is good, and technological tools are simply neutral instruments. I've been very influenced by the work of Neil Postman and other media ecologists. I think that there is a lot of benefit for Christians from those thinkers. But when it comes to how it is that we interact with one another, As well as with non-Christians online, I am very disturbed, grieved, and frankly, some of the times I see some of that, it makes me more sympathetic to people who do find the faith less plausible because of what it is that they are seeing. I still believe that there is good, sound reason to be a Christian. It does make me more sympathetic when I behold What is going
1: on between Christians online? Yeah. Keith, when I think about your statement that historically Christians have had this mindset as long as I'm not using technology to engage in immoral activity, then I'm doing fine. But that raises the question when it comes to social media how we've gotten to a point where being really mean or hypercritical of those in our community of faith and outside of our community of faith, like how that's not viewed as immoral. That's kind of one of my personal concerns and soapboxes. But my question for you is what are the various concerns that you have most about the, the ways you see Christians using social media or, or behaving on social media?
0: Yeah. There are several. There is the the sense of, you know, I think about what Paul says in Galatians, and he warns about devouring one another, biting and devouring one another. I, I think that we are at a very pivotal time societally where Christian virtues, the fruit of the Spirit, things such as gentleness, kindness, patience, are seen as weak. And Because we are in an attention economy, because we are in, you know, I think it's very easy for us to rationalize that because the stakes are so high, because the gravity of what I am talking about with respect to the gospel is so great, then really I can, and no one's going to say this, but really I can disobey God in other areas for the sake of the truth. and. I'm very concerned about the harshness, the severity, the impatience with other believers. And the reason that I'm focusing on other believers is because Christ said that a big part of our witness to the world has to do with our relationship with each other. And so we cannot divorce evangelism and apologetics from Christian life and Christian corporate life. And so that's one of my my concerns. The failure to recognize the limits of various media in terms of what it is that they do well and what it is that they don't and a lack of discernment in terms of how it is that we make use of various media and particularly social media now I sometimes marvel at the fact that I see people trying to use social media and various platforms as though they're multi-purpose and that they can do everything. And I think that something like Twitter or Facebook is good for some things, but it's not good for everything. And there are formative powers that are at work as we use these various tools unthinkingly that we are being shaped, that we are being formed, that our values are being turned in a variety of ways. So whether it be some of the stuff uh, like uh, Jamie Smith's cultural liturgies, talking about the formative powers of practices, whether it be some of the other thinkers and writers who are, are doing this, I this is the naivete I'm I'm thinking about that we would like to believe that our instruments are completely neutral. And by neutral, I don't mean necessarily, I'm not talking about morally neutral, but I'm saying people think that there are no intrinsic or inherent ideological priorities and values in given tools. So, for example, as we were talking about before, social media values brevity, speed, Wit, sometimes biting, and anything to get attention. And it's as though, as Christians, we're all shock jocks now. We're all vying for this limited attention. And we can tell ourselves, well, whatever I do to get it is okay because, after all, it's for the gospel. After all, it's for the truth. And we don't give much thought to whether or not we are displaying christ in how it is that we are defending christ and the gospel so i was so glad to hear when uh, you reached out and said this is the topic that you want to talk about because i think apologetics and people involved in apologetics have to be doing this much much more it's not just the content it is our character and our relationships And you mentioned Josh Shatrow, one of the things that I just so love about apologetics at the cross and telling a better story, but particularly apologetics at the cross is the strong doctrine of the church and the realization of the corporate aspect of apologetics that cannot be divorced
2: from the manner in which we deal with one another. One of the great lies of modernity, I think, and perhaps in terms of its impact, one of the ones that is the biggest lies of modernity because we don't see it, and that is the form and content are separable. That is really one of the great lies of modernity, that the form and the content can be separated. And we told ourselves for many years, the message, as long as the message remains the same, the means and the medium can change however we want it to. And now we're reaping that we're reaping the results of that in social media, and it is, it should anyway show us that that was always a lie. Form and content are not neatly divisible, they are things that the form shapes the content, and the content should shape the form, and if the, they're not, then then we we believe this lie that the form can be whatever we want it to be and the content is all that matters. And that's simply not true. The form and the content of our presentation both matter deeply. And one of the greatest lies of modernity is that somehow we can neatly split those and it results in a lack of kindness, a lack of gentleness, because we think that the, the form we it in can be mean and biting and snarky, but the content is still there. And our content is all is all grounded in our confessions of faith, is completely congruent with all of our doctrinal statements. It's all orthodox. Therefore, it must be okay. But that's something that is an utter and absolute lie that we're going to to see, I think, more and more negative outcomes from that lie.
0: Yeah, in my in my chapter in the Digital Public Square, I'm kind of riffing off of one of Schaefer's. Lesser known works called Two Contents, Two Realities. And it was an address that he gave to the Lausanne Congress on evangelization. And the two contents that he was talking about were the content of sound biblical orthodox teaching and what he called honest answers to honest questions. So there is content to be communicated. But then he talked about the necessity of reality. By which, and the two realities he had in mind is what he called true spirituality, the true spirituality being the spirit bearing the fruit of Christ in our lives. And then he talked about the beauty of human relationships, that in reaching the world, there must be content and reality. When we think about the internet, it is very good for the transmission of content. It is by virtue of its limitations. I mean, the reality of christian love which jesus said is how people would know his followers and that he prayed for with respect to our unity so that the world would believe that the father had sent him there are limitations on what can be done in terms of the realities that also bear witness to the truth of christ and to the degree that We can express something of the realities of the beauty of relationships. We need to be prayerful and intentional about this in terms of our interacting with one another before the world digitally.
1: I just read again, (laughs) Josh is telling about a storybook with a group of guys here in the church and we spent a lot of time really kind of slowing down and, and talking to about the aspect of one of the first principles of apologetics is the kind of person that the apologist is. And we really hammered on that a lot. And Josh m- makes this comment, which I think applies to theology, ethics, apologetics, like just so many areas, but that he says our apologetics cannot be separated from our discipleship, right? These are two areas that we don't tend to be thought of, you know, in the or include in the same sentence, but it's, it's essential. Yes. And now I want to, I want to
0: be fair in terms of the other side. I think our flesh is such that some of us, I think, temperamentally are going to be brash and we're going to say that's boldness. Others of us might be timid and maybe it's sometimes cowardly and call that, well, we're being meek. And the challenge for all of us is to be conformed more to the image of Christ because the same Christ who blessed the children is the one who turned over the tables. And as I put it, we all have our favorite Jesus. And you know that, that favorite Jesus is surprisingly the one that most fits my disposition, but yet we don't have different Jesuses in the Gospels. We've, we've got this multifaceted Jesus who is bold, courageous, but also gentle and kind. And going back to the point that you just made, this is why discipleship is so unhitchable from apologetics and evangelism because, you know, I, I've got my blind spots about my temperament and disposition— Someone else has theirs, and we need the body as we are all in this process of
2: being made like, like Christ. Just so helpful. I do want to point our listeners to your own Twitter account. So if when any of you dial up on the interweb, if you use the Twitters, then you can find Keith at Xian Mind, X I A N, short for Christian, of course, X I A N Mind. And I really encourage you, if you do use Twitter, follow Keith on Twitter and uh, be sure to kind of pay attention to the tone that he's presenting and the kindness and yet the clarity and conviction. I think it's a good model for us of somebody who's thought well through these issues. X I A N Mind. Thank you again for joining us today. Oh, well, thank you for your kind words and thank you for the work that you guys are doing. I think you
0: model exactly the kinds of things we've been talking about. I really appreciate your
2: work. So thanks. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're interested in supporting the Apologetics podcast, go to patreon.com three chords and the truth. As always, that's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug.
1: To listen to more episodes or to learn more about the two of
2: us, take a look at our website at theapologeticspodcast.com. Also, if you're interested in learning more about apologetics, ministry, and leadership in urban contexts, you might enjoy the Urban Ministry Podcast. Go to urban.sbts.edu to learn more about this podcast. My name is Timothy Paul Jones. My co-host is Garrick Bailey, and we are already looking forward to joining you next time on the next exciting episode of The Apologetics Podcast.